Thank you, Charles. If uh, we already have somebody bid two hundred dollars for the black and they're going to get it. Charles is throwing in another fifty, even though he's an Aggie, just to get rid of it. He's paying me well. Jan's giving a hundred. Now this is for Rocky Vasquez and his Gangs for Christ. So if you want to make a donation, you should see Charles today before he leaves, and he'll take your money or your pledge, right? And uh, I agree with you, Charles. Any person who's an alum of uh, University of Texas and doesn't give you $50 or something wrong with you. <laughs> We're going to bring them up before the Sunday School Class Membership Committee. Does that include me, too? <laughs> Come on. you got to say something bad about me anyway, so what else is Joey's wearing a longhorn, uh, what do you call that thing? Longhorn jacket. Longhorn jacket, okay. Well, anyway, if you are uh, visiting our class today, we're glad you're here. We hope you enjoy it. We're studying in the uh, Gospel of Luke, so take your Bible and turn there. The Gospel of Luke. And while you're finding that, let me tell you what we're doing on our new Criswell Theological Review for the spring. The spring 09 edition will come out about three or four months from now. We're dealing with uh, interracial marriage, okay? and I thought this was uh, a great subject to deal with. One is we have a president who is had a uh, parents from two different races, and it's a very um, timely issue. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to have a an article on interracial marriage and the Old Testament from Dan Hayes from Wachita Baptist University. Got an article from Craig Keener, who's one of the world's best-known scholars on interracial marriage in the New Testament. I have a tentative interview with the president of Bob Jones University. You guys look for that. And because Bob Jones University just came out about three weeks ago and made a statement regarding interracial marriage. And so I've written to him, and he's I've heard that he's drafted a response. His assistant told me he drafted a response and I should get that this week. So uh, hopefully he'll agree with that, and we'll have an interview, and we have several other articles on that topic. So that is going to be, I think, a very uh, important uh, issue of our journal. Now we are, our journal is recognized by several organizations, professional organizations, and one is called ATLA. And that's an organization that uh, puts your journal online so that scholars all around the world can access your journal online and uh, use your journal for research. Wow. Now, we can't get on there. The average person can't get on there. Your university has to have a membership to ATLA. But our articles last year, last year, scholars from around the world came to that website and accessed articles from the Criswell Theological Review 24,000 times. Woo! Amen. So we're really excited about that. And I think the reason is, is because we've had very timely articles. And if people want to know about the emergent church or open theism or some heresy, we've dealt with it. And so when they type that word into that website, up comes our journal. And I believe that this particular issue is going to be very timely, and there are going to be a lot of people that are going to access that. So you'll want to get a copy of that when it comes out. Okay, let's turn to Luke chapter 18. 
Now, last week we left the disciples walking with Jesus to the road on the road to Jerusalem, and they're having a discussion about the timing of the kingdom of God's arrival on earth in its fullness. And Jesus said to them that uh, they weren't going to see it in their lifetime. They desired to see it, and he said, uh, but it's not going to come in your lifetime. Instead, what you're going to have is suffering. He says, when the kingdom of God does come upon the earth, it's going to be like lightning. It's going to be like a flash, and everybody's going to know when it happens. Therefore, he says, don't be deceived. He's telling his disciples, don't be deceived, because some people are going to say, the Messiah is here. The Messiah is over there. He says, look, when that happens, you'll know it. It'll be like lightning shining from the east to the west. And he said, and when the kingdom of God comes to earth in its fullness, it will be a time of judgment. It'll be a time of separation. The Messiah will separate the lost, many of whom will be religious people, and even claim to be Christians, and they will be judged, and then there will be those that have given their lives to Christ, and they will enter the kingdom of God. Now, how are we to live between until the Lord comes? And that's what we're going to deal with today. How are we to live until the Lord arrives and sets up his kingdom on earth? So look at chapter 18. It says, then Jesus spoke a parable to them. Now, a parable is a lesson in story form. It's a story that drives a point home. And this parable has a purpose. It has a point that Jesus wants to make. Look what it is. It says, then he spoke a parable to them, and here it is, that men, meaning people, always ought to pray and not lose heart. Now remember what the context is. Everything we've been talking about in the context is the arrival of the kingdom of God, and it's being delayed. The kingdom is being delayed. What are we to do during this delay period, during this interim period between the first coming of Christ and the second coming? Here's what we're to do. We ought to be praying, he says, always, we always ought to pray and not lose heart. Now, what are we to pray for? Well, if you look at the other time that Luke talks about prayer and Jesus talks about prayer, he says, when you pray, pray like this. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy what? Oh, that's what we should be praying for. See, we desire for the kingdom to come just like the disciples did. Jesus said it's not going to come in your lifetime, don't be deceived. But guess what? It could come in our lifetime. So what are we to do until it comes? We're to pray that it comes, that God brings it in. And how are we to pray? It says, and not what? Lose heart. Don't give up. Persevere in that prayer. Lord, send your kingdom. That's the Lord's prayer. That's why some churches repeat the Lord's prayer every week. Because they consider that the most important prayer to be uttered from human lips. We should constantly be praying, Lord, send your kingdom. And we should never give up praying that. To lose heart is the opposite of faith. You know? So what he should say is, pray faithfully. Don't give up in praying that the Lord's kingdom will come. Pray faithfully. Always pray persistently. Now, to drive this point home, he's going to tell a story. Okay, so remember, the purpose is that we should be praying. The context is for the kingdom to come. Never giving up. 
And now he's going to tell the story to drive that point home. Look at verse number two. He says, there was a certain, there was in a certain city a judge who did not fear God nor regard men. This is character number one in our story. He is a judge. That means, first of all, he's a person of status. He's an important person in his community, in society. Second of all, we know he's a wicked judge. How do we know that? Because of the phrase, he didn't fear God. <laughs> he didn't fear man. He did what he wanted to do. That phrase, did not fear God, gave no regard to men, is an Old Testament phrase that's used a lot of times in the Old Testament, and it means a wicked person. So that's the first character, this wicked judge. Now look at verse 3. And there was a widow in the city. That's character number two. What do we know about her? She has no status. She's a nobody. She is not important. She has absolutely no power. First of all, women had very little power in the first century, and a widow had less power. She has no status whatsoever. Now look what else it says in verse 3. She came to him, the wicked judge, saying, Get justice for me. <clears throat> That's like asking Saddam Hussein, get justice for me. <laughs> you don't ask a wicked person for justice, but who else do you go to? <clears throat> she says, get justice for me from my adversaries. Now from this we know something. <clears throat> this woman had no kinsmen to plead her case. If you were a woman, woman, you didn't go before a judge on your own. You usually had a kinsman, a, you know, a son or a nephew or an uncle or a brother who would plead your case to the court because the courts were man-centered. And so this means this woman has no person to plead her case, so she is absolutely helpless. She's absolutely hopeless. And because this guy's a wicked judge, guess what he was expecting? A bribe. He was expecting a bribe. Remember when Paul was before the governor? The governor, was it Felix, I think it was, it says that he was waiting for a bribe. Paul never gave him a bribe, so Paul stayed in jail. So this is the kind of judge that she's before, and she wants justice, but she doesn't have any money to pay him off. All she wants is righteousness, what's done... What, she, she's not asking him for a favor, she's just asking him to do something right, which is you know, unlikely in this particular scenario. So look at verse 4. And he would not for a while. But afterward, he said within himself, Though I do not fear God, nor regard men, yet because this woman troubles me, I will avenge her, lest by her continual coming she weary me. Now, what's happening here? This guy's waiting for a bribe. She doesn't have any money to give him. He's not going to give her the time of day. But guess what? He changes his mind. Why? Yeah, she's bothering him. She's badgering him. She's driving him crazy. She, she keeps coming back to the court. She keeps getting a court date. She gets on the docket, and he says, I'm not doing it because I want justice. 
I'm not doing it as a favor for this woman. I'm doing it for self-interest. This woman's troubling me and she's wearying me, which are boxing terms. <laughs> it means to give somebody a black eye and they're getting knocked silly and they're getting tired of getting knocked down and getting back up. Uh, she's just wearing this man down. So how long does she come? Well, long enough to wear him down. That's how long she comes. So that's very interesting. So look at verse 6. Then the Lord said, Hear what the unjust judge said? <laughs> yeah, we heard it. He gave in, didn't he? So now Jesus is going to give his commentary on the story. Look at verse 7. He says, And shall not God, there's the same word used in verse 5, shall not God avenge his own elect who cry out day and night to him, though he bears with them long? That's a question. Won't God avenge his elect, though he bears with them long? And what's the answer? Yes. Yes. Now, <clears throat> what are they crying for? What are we crying for in verse 7? We're crying for what? Yeah, it will be avenged. The justice will take place. Now watch this carefully. Remember the context. The context is the kingdom. Guess what we're crying for? God, come back. Set up your kingdom. At which time, what happens? Judgment. Justice. That's when God avenges his people. See, we can go through this life and we may get raw deals throughout our entire life and people may persecute us and we may die in that state. We may even die martyrs. When are we avenged? When the kingdom comes. So that's what the elect do. The elect are crying out in a sense for the kingdom that righteousness will prevail and God will avenge us. So that's what happens when the kingdom comes. There's going to be judgment for those who are lost and reward for those who are saved. Now, I want you to notice a couple things in verse 7. First of all, I want you to notice that God is contrasted with the judge. You see that? God is contrasted with the judge. The judge is unjust, but God is just. Just the opposite of the judge. So this story has a little twist. He's contrasted with the judge. The judge is unjust. God is just. Okay, now second of all, I want you to notice that the elect are, are contrasted with the widow. The elect are contrasted with the widow. The widow is a person of no status, and she means absolutely nothing to the judge. But the elect, we're related to God, and we mean a lot. So guess what? God is going to answer our prayer. Not because we were in down, but because we're children. And it says this. He will answer. <clears throat> he will answer who? He will answer the elect who cry out day and night. Even though he bears with them long. Even though it may take a long time to answer that prayer, he will answer the prayer. Now, here's the point. If the unjust judge will help a person who means nothing to him, what do you think God will do for a person that means everything to him? See, that's the point that Jesus is trying to make here. Now, notice that phrase, cry out day and night. Does that remind you of anything? 
Do you know another group of people, maybe in the Old Testament, maybe in Exodus, who cried out night and day that God would free them and avenge them? Of course, it was Israel under Egyptian bondage. Here are people under Roman imperialism, and Christians throughout the ages have always had to fight the people who are oppressing them. And we're getting a raw deal. And Jesus says we should expect a raw deal in our lifetime. But guess what? God will avenge you, but you need to be crying out day and night, Lord, Lord, deliver us, just like Israel did. And God, what will he do? He'll send another Moses. He'll send another deliverer who will lead a new exodus and who will put us in a new promised land, who will set up a kingdom for us where we will reign under his rule. And so that's what we're, we have here. So this particular passage is not dealing with when it says men ought to always pray and not lose heart. It's not talking about just normal prayer. Lord, I hurt my toe. Will you heal my toe? Now, I'm not saying we shouldn't pray for that. But that's not what this passage is talking about. Okay? So it's very important that we understand that. Now look at verse 8. Jesus answers his own question. He says, I tell you that he will avenge them. Speedily. Whoa, look at that. He will avenge them speedily. Now in verse 7 it said, though he bears with them what? Long. Now which is it? Is it long or is it speedily? He's long-suffering. Yes, he is long-suffering, and that's exactly what it is. See, he, he has a purpose, and he might not answer our petition immediately to send the kingdom, but guess what? When he sends it, it'll be just like that. It'll be like lightning shining out of the east into the west. It'll happen so fast that you won't have time to blink your eyes. It'll be like in a twinkling of an eye, the scripture says. But, in the meantime, God has a purpose. God's long-suffering. The Apostle Peter says, in the last days, mockers will come and they'll say, Ah, what's this talk of his coming? We've been hearing that for years. We have for 2,000 years. And then Peter says, well, look, God's not mocked. He's long-suffering. He's not willing that any should perish, but that all should what? Come unto repentance. God is just giving time for people to come to repentance so they too can enter the kingdom of God. But he has a purpose. But when he decides to come, it indeed will be speedily. So, despite the delay, the kingdom indeed is on its way going to happen. Okay, does that make sense to you? Okay, now let's look at the second parable. Look at verse 9. <clears throat> second parable. Also. Do you see that? That word also connects it to the first parable. There's going to be some sort of relationship. He's not changing subject. He's still talking about the kingdom. So look what it says. Also, he spoke this parable to some who trusted in themselves. Now it's a second parable. He's talking to those who trusted in themselves. Now, who along the road with Jesus trusted in themselves? You know anybody in that category? They have a title? They have a name? What are they called? The Pharisees. So this parable is addressed to the Pharisees, but it's still talking about the kingdom. Those who trusted themselves, that they were righteous. This is what they... That word trust in themselves, don't think of it in terms of the way we do. Oh, they're trusting in themselves for salvation. They're working for their way. That's not what it means here. It just means these people were self-assured. 
that they were righteous. They were self-assured that they were okay with God. And, look what else. They despised others. They despised others. See, that is the Pharisees. The Pharisees hang around with each other, but they just don't like anybody that's different than themselves. So this particular parable is addressed to them. Now look at verse 10. Here's the parable itself. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One, here he is, a Pharisee, and the other, a tax collector. So what do we have here? We have an insider, and we have an outsider, right? We have direct opposites of each other. One person with status, one person no status. One person an up-and-outer, in a sense, and one a down-and-outer. They both go to the temple because of the tax collector probably being considered unclean. He probably had to go into an outer court. He couldn't even go into that inner court where most of the, the Jewish people went in and prayed because he, he rubbed shoulders with Gentiles. And so he probably had to go to a different court in the temple to do the praying. But they both go to the temple to pray. So both of them are praying, which is very interesting. Now look at verse 11. We're going to have to tell about the Pharisee. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself. Now, two things I want you to notice. First of all, he stood and prayed. That was the normal way people prayed. So when it says he stood and prayed, that was not abnormal. That was normal. Okay? That's first of all. We're going to see that the tax collector does the same, prays the same way. But look at the second thing in verse 11. It said he thus prayed, he prayed thus with himself. You see that? He prayed thus with himself, not to himself. A lot of people will preach this passage and they'll say, oh, he was praying to himself. His prayers weren't getting any higher than the ceiling. No, he didn't pray to himself. How did he pray? He prayed what? With himself. All by himself. <laughs> he prayed. He didn't, you know, he just, because the Pharisees were considered separatists. They were, they could call themselves pious people. Uh, that's how they felt. They didn't rub shoulders with other people. They, he's going to pray, but guess what? He's praying in the Pharisee section right here with himself. He wouldn't take somebody's hand and say, hey, would you pray with me? No, he would never do anything like that. Let's hold hands and pray. Not the Pharisee. He prays with himself. Okay? Now look what else it says. Let's look at that prayer. It's a great prayer. I like it. Look what he says. God, I thank you that you're a great God. You're loving. You're merciful. You're the God of salvation. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Is that what he prayed? Look at this. It's amazing what he prays. If you look at it, verse 11. He says, God, I thank you. But then he starts talking about himself. <laughs> In other words, when you thank God, you're usually thanking God for something God does. But guess what he does? He thanks God for what he does. It's really great. Look at this. He says, I thank you, number one, I am not like other men. Extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this tax collector. So he's a person who sees himself as holy and pious and set apart. 
Uh, it's a negative. It's a negative. In other words, he's saying this in, in a negative sense. You know, If you ever try to witness to somebody, it's very interesting. Most people are pharisaical. And if you try to witness to somebody and you come to the part where you say, and first of all, you need to know you're a sinner, they'll say, well, I never committed it. I've never killed somebody. You know, they always go with, the, it's the same thing. Do you ever know? Notice what he says. Look, I'm not like an extortionist, adulterer. I've never committed adultery. It's amazing how people view themselves. He views himself as pious and in right standing with God, a child of God, based on the things that he does and the things that he does not do, which is very interesting. And he has this contempt. And I'm not like this guy. Which is very interesting. That's negative. Now look at the positive. Here's what he does do. I fast twice a week. And I give tithes of all that I possess. He does more than the law requires. Most Jews only pray fasted once a week. He fasts twice a week. Twice as much. Hey, he gives tithes of all he possesses. He gives a tithe on the gross. Not on the net. Man, if you had a church member like this, who never did anything wrong, never unjust, <coughs> prayed and fasted twice as much as anybody else in your church, and tithed on these gross, you'd say, that's a perfect church member, you'd collect him a deacon. So here's this person who defines his piety based on his Righteous lifestyle. <clears throat> and it is righteous. Don't say it's not righteous. In fact, one time when Jesus talks to his disciples, he says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of what? The Pharisees, you will not be saved. They were righteous people. But it's the wrong kind of righteousness. The things that the Pharisee thinks is important are not the things that God thinks is important. The thing that the Pharisee says, the things that the Pharisee mentions that identify him as a person of God are not the characteristics that God uses to identify people as his children. And that's really the difference there. So look at verse 13. Now it says, the tax collector standing afar off would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but he beat his breast which is a sign of repentance in the Old Testament. It's how Jews, they would tear their garments and they would beat their breast. So Luke is, Luke's audience would recognize that as a sign of repentance. This man wouldn't even put his eyes up. He just beat his breast and he said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. He doesn't feel worthy of even standing in God's presence and he asks for mercy. Be merciful to me, a sinner. He asks for divine favor. One doesn't need divine favor because he's already right with God in his mind. The other one realizes his state and says he needs divine favor. Look at verse 14. Jesus is going to explain it now. <clears throat> I tell you, this man went down to his house vindicated or justified, meaning forgiven, rather than the other. So the tax collector goes down and he's justified or he's vindicated or he's forgiven 
rather than the Pharisee. Why is that? Because the Pharisee asked for nothing. And guess what he got? Nothing. This man asked for mercy, and guess what he gets? Mercy. He gets forgiveness. See? So that's very important. Now remember what the context of this whole section is. It's the kingdom of God. What we're to do until the kingdom comes, and now who's going to get into the kingdom? Will it be people like the Pharisee, or will it be people like the tax collector who are repentant and ask God for mercy, even though they don't deserve it? See, that's what this is about. And Jesus says, this man is the one who will be justified. Now, when the kingdom comes, one will be justified and vindicated. He will be avenged, in a sense, and he will walk into the kingdom. And the other one will be bird food. Remember, the vultures are going to go... Where, what was talked about last week? They're going to be judged. Now, why is this man vindicated? Look at this. Into verse 14. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. How many? Everyone. And he who humbles himself, and this means before God, of course, will be exalted. Everyone who feels he has a right standing with God because he's pious and he does these kinds of things, that person will be humbled, be brought down low. The one who realizes he has no right standing with God cries out in repentance and says, God, I'm trusting you to give me mercy. That person will be exalted. That person will enter the kingdom of God. So this is telling us who's going to enter the kingdom of God. Now we're going to move on, and you're going to see something very interesting. <clears throat> Look at verse 15. We have a story of children. Okay, the story of children. <clears throat> then, or an account of children, it's not actually a story. Then they also brought infants to him that he might touch them. But when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. Now, what's happening here? Jesus told two stories, and now, and Luke includes those two stories in the text. And now Luke says, and by the way, I want to tell you something else that happened about this time. About this time, there were a group of people that brought their little kids to Jesus, most likely parents. Uh, the phrase there, children or infants, means very small infants, ones that can't even walk. And they're coming and they're bringing their children to Jesus. They see him as a rabbi. They would see Jesus as a Jewish rabbi, and they want him to do something. Either they want him to bless their children, just like we dedicate babies in front of our church, or there's a lot of infant immortality, or mortality rather, they may have asked one of Jesus to touch their babies and heal their babies, thinking that he was the Messiah. We're just not told why they bring their children to Jesus, but except that he is to touch them. Now, watch what the disciples do. When these disciples saw it, they rebuked the parents. That's the point that Luke wants you to see. What's happening here? The disciples are acting just like everybody else in society. 
Why? Because these children have no status, no intrinsic value. Children were thrown out on garbage heaps and left to die, thrown out in the streets and left to die after they were born. If they were born deformed or if they were born sick, sometimes the parents would just throw them right on out. They had no status, no intrinsic value. They were absolutely not important to society. The only thing children were important for was when they would get old enough to work, they could go out into the fields and help that family exist. But as little children, they had no value whatsoever. So what did the disciples do? They rebuked the parents because these kids are not important enough to be brought to Jesus. Jesus has Pharisees that he needs to be talking to and other important people. So the disciples are acting just like society. Now look at verse 16. But Jesus called them to him and said, Let the little children come to me, and do not forbid them. Let the little children come to me, and do not forbid them. With Jesus, status or lack of status means absolutely nothing. Amen. He doesn't care who you are. He doesn't care what you do. He doesn't care what you've done in the past. If you are brought to Jesus or you come to Jesus, he accepts you. He doesn't determine your worth based on your status, which was very important in the first century. So that means nothing to Jesus. And now what we have is we have the lesson. We have the explanation. Look at the end of verse 16. Let them come to me. Why? Here's why. For of such is the kingdom of God. You want to know who's going to enter the kingdom of God? He's still dealing with the kingdom of God. You see that? That's the whole purpose of this is to discuss the kingdom of God. What's it going to be like when he comes? There's going to be judgment. See? What should we do until he comes? We should pray for it. When he comes, what's going to happen when he comes? He will avenge us. Who will enter in? The people who say, Lord, be merciful to me. Those who realize what, how God defines piety, not how man defines piety. What's it going to be like? The kingdom of God is going to be like, it's going to be filled with a bunch of people like little children. Little children who what? Well, if it's all children who trust, well, that's fine, but that's not the context. In this case, the context is children who have no status. The kingdom is always filled with people who have no status. Status before whom? Before God. See, in this world, status means something. I want to know what neighborhood you live in. I want to know what kind of car you have. I want to know what school you went to. <laughs> I want to know how much money you make. I want to know where you buy your clothes, what clubs you belong to, what organizations do you serve on, what church do you go to. Oh, you go to Fourth Baptist? Oh, I go to First Baptist. That means something to us. <laughs> and we actually think that we're more pious than other people. We're not like those people with Fourth Baptist. But ultimately, here's the point, ultimately, who has status before God? No one. 
But what does God do? He accepts us. And that's what we need to realize. See, the kingdom of God is going to be filled up with people like the children. People who are not important. See, It's going to be filled up with people like tax collectors. Even a tax collector. And he's not important in our society. Well, guess what? He doesn't have any status in society. He doesn't have any status with God. But when he repents and he humbles himself, then what does God do? Exalts him. How does he go away? Justified. See, and that's what Luke wants us to see. And then look at verse 17. Jesus says this. Assuredly, I say to you, who does, whoever does not receive the kingdom, still in the kingdom, as a little child, as an infant, will by no means enter it. Now, that's a very awkward verse in the Greek. And it's really hard to interpret. And the most people say, well, that means, well, if you have to receive the kingdom as a little child. And how do they read? Well, do your little children trust? Now, these are infants that don't do anything hardly. It can mean that. It can mean that you have to receive the kingdom in a humble fashion. That's possible. <laughs> but most likely, here's what it means. And see if this doesn't make a little more sense to you in light of what we've been following in the Gospel of Luke. I think it reads something like this. I say to you, whosoever does not receive the kingdom of God as one receives a little <coughs> child shall not enter the kingdom of God. Whosoever does not receive the kingdom of God the same way that he would receive a little child. See, how do you receive a little child? If you receive a little <coughs> child as, oh, isn't that a nice little child? then guess what? That's how you'll receive the kingdom of God. You'll welcome the kingdom of God. You'll be concerned about the kingdom of God. You'll enter the kingdom of God. But how about if you're like the disciples? And you say, don't bring those kids here. Because how did they receive the children? <laughs> they didn't receive the children. <laughs> so guess what? In that present state, would the disciples be candidates for the kingdom of God? Uh, let me ask you this. How did the Pharisee receive the tax collector? I'm glad I'm not like him. Uh, would he be a candidate for the kingdom of God? You see, here's how we know who is a candidate for the kingdom of God. How do you receive people without status? Now, I'm not talking about a work salvation. This is how a person who is trusting God and has experienced God's mercy, this is a characteristic of a person who's received God's mercy. A person who's received God's mercy and understands God's grace accepts everybody. See, so, how do you receive children? Do you receive children like the disciples did? <coughs> Do you receive children like the Pharisees did? Or do you, do you receive children like Jesus did? Oh, well, if you're a Jesus person, you will receive people with no status, with open arms. See? And that is how we receive the kingdom of God. That's the person who basically enters the kingdom of God. And I think that's what Luke wants us to say. So what we have here is we have, I think, Luke writing to people 
In 60, 65 AD, 30 years after Jesus, 40 years after Jesus has died on the cross and been raised, is speaking to an audience and he's telling these stories because guess what? They need to hear this. Because it's so easy for those of us who identify with the church to become more like the Pharisees than like Jesus. And we look at the things that we do and the things that we don't do, and we say that is, that is how a Christian is defined. And Jesus says, no, that's not how you define a Christian. You want to know, you want to know what a Christian's like? Look at how he treats a little person. Does he treat people who have no status? Does he give them the time of the day? Does he treat them like Jesus? If he does, he'll be with Jesus. I think that's what Luke wants us to do. He wants us to evaluate our lives. So who enters the kingdom of God? Those who embrace kingdom values. The ones who enter the kingdom of God. Don't tell me you walked an aisle when you were 23 years old, but you haven't lived like a Christian for the last 23 years. That you're a member of this church or that church, or you were baptized, or you've had the Lord's Supper. That's not the mark of a Christian. The mark of a Christian is do you have the mark of Christ in your life? See? Has it taken root? The Pharisees prayed twice as much and fasted twice as much and tithed on their gross. Have you done that? That's not the mark or the characteristic that God's hunting for. Oh, there's mine, there's mine. I can see that. No. If you've done it, to the least, welcome in. <coughs> welcome in. Otherwise, you're a Christian name only, not a Christian in lifestyle, not a kingdom Christian. Now, I think that that's the meaning. And next week, we're going to go to verse 18, where we have a ruler comes, and he wants to know how to enter the kingdom of God. And he's very much like the Pharisee. And so, in the end, Jesus says, well, I'll tell you what you need to do. In verse 22. He said, you lack one thing. Because you see, this guy, like the Pharisee, never committed adultery, never committed murder. That's not how God identifies you. So Jesus said, well, you lack one thing. Look at verse 22. You still lack one thing. Sell all you have and distribute it to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven. And come and follow me. It's hard teaching, isn't it? But when you're dealing with the text honestly, you have to deal with it. As the author intended it. And this is designed to, to say to us, well, where do I fit in this? Who do I look like? Do I look more like the Pharisee? Do I look more like the rich young ruler? Do I look more like... The disciples, or do I look more like Jesus? And if the answer is, I look more like Jesus, then you should walk away from the text feeling pretty good. If you look more like the others, you should walk away from the text saying, okay, I need to repent. I need to get back in line. I need to be formed into the image of Christ until he comes. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have given us a word that is true. You've given us a word that convicts. You've given us a word of hope. We know that the kingdom will come. We know that we will be avenged. 
We know that anything that we have given in your name, even a cup of cold water, will be returned not only in this lifetime, but in the lifetime to come. You're going to take care of every one of our needs, and you have rewards for us in the kingdom. You said your kingdom would come. We're to pray until it comes. Lord, help us to be faithful in that endeavor. We thank you, Lord, for this Christmas season where the whole spirit of Christmas is giving. From you giving your son, Jesus Christ, and sending him to us giving in his name to others. May this be a, this Christmas be a season where indeed our Christianity uh, manifests itself in real ways and people can see Christ in us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.